Christians want answer about work. Should I work for the Commonwealth Bank or should I work for Westpac or is banks so corrupt I shouldn't work for any of them? Should I become a school teacher instead? The Bible, I keep telling you, is all that we need to know and all the matters that matter are in the Scriptures. And that there's more in the Scriptures than you would ever expect to find. And it will give you more guidance about what you to do and not to do and where to go and what's wise and what's foolish. It's in the Scriptures. But the Bible's answers are very often different to people's expectations. So people come with a particular question which implies an answer. But the answer they've implied is actually wrong because the question is ill-conceived. See, what colour is the equator? Well, the equator doesn't have a colour. So as long as I'm asking the question, what colour is the equator, I will be unhappy. Because you won't say red or green or blue or yellow, all of which are answers I would accept. You'll keep on saying no. And I say, well, it's got to have a colour. And they say, no, it hasn't. Well, but what colour is it? And as long as I stay stupid like that, I'll never get an answer that is right, will I? And so when we approach the Bible, or when we approach life, with questions that are actually stupid questions, we don't get the right answer. We don't accept the answer when it's given. The great trick of research, for those of you who are interested in going into research, poor people, you, is to find the right question. Most people, when they start out, think the, an the key is to find the right answers. No, no. If you find the right question and frame it the right way, the answers will fall out for you. But as long as you're approaching the world with the wrong question, you won't get the right answers. So for years, people investigated ulcers, not realising the cause of ulcer had nothing to do with what most medicos thought the cause of ulcer was, until a man in Western Australia, a GP over there, insisted that he'd found the answer, and he actually gave himself an ulcer so as to prove what the cause of ulcers were, and he won the Nobel Prize out of it, I understand. But as long as you're looking with the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. That's how we approach the Bible. But it's not just how we approach the Bible, it's how we approach life. If you read the Bible, the Bible will tell you the right question and give you the answer. Rather than approaching life with the wrong questions and then looking up the Bible and getting frustrated because you can't find the answer to the wrong question. What the Bible does is it shifts your paradigm rather than giving you the answer you wanted. It says, well, that's really interesting, but if you look at it this way, ah, yeah, well, that's not actually the question I needed answer after all. Now I can see my question was a silly question. This is the answer, because this is the question that I need. It's a, a paradigm shift. So when you look at the world through Bible glasses, you find your questions are often silly, and questions that you never thought of were actually the important ones that will give you the answers to life. So, you're going to leave uni in a few years' time. Some of you in a long time, depending on your pass rates. But you're going to leave eventually. Now, the basic paradigm for understanding work in our society is materialism. That's how they understand life. 
And the part of life in which materialism seems to be particularly appropriate and related is work. If you've got a materialistic view of life and a view of work, you will ask certain questions about work as to what it's for and why I do it and why I should do here as opposed to there, etc. But of course, if materialism is wrong, and it is, then the questions you're asking and the answers you're giving will also be wrong. Now, you're a Christian. And as a Christian materialist, you ask the materialist questions and then you look for the Bible to give you the answers and you say, well, I can't find the answers here. Well, of course you can't find the answers here because the Bible is not a materialist view of the world. So you need to actually understand the worldview that you have left behind in becoming a Christian to read the Bible clearly as to what the questions are as much as what the answers are. You see, the world has been fighting for some time, a hundred years or so, with the socialists and the capitalists. The left wing, where you're sitting, the left wing, and the right wing. And so these two great forces of argument have dominated political argument for the best part of a hundred, a bit more than a hundred years, since the Fabians and the rise of the Labour Party on the left and the Liberals and the rise of conservatism in that regard. It's socialism versus capitalism. Now, which is Christian? The answer is neither. That's the problem for us Christians politically. We can't really have either party expressing where we're coming from because socialism is built out of a materialistic envy of other people's possessions and capitalism is built out of a materialistic greed for gaining more possessions. We're not into envy, we're not into greed because we're not into possessions. So we're not into either of these views. I can argue for socialism as a Christian because it's concerned with community wealth rather than individual wealth. And I can argue for capitalism as a Christian because the the labourer is worthy of his hire and so the person who works hard should be rewarded for their hard work. I can argue for both from a Christian point of view but frankly neither of them are Christian. And so we get caught politically because we can't really support either party or we could support both parties because they are both expressing materialism as opposed to a Christian view of the world. Materialism gives rise very profoundly though to individualism and that is the problem of the 20th century here in Australia and in the Western world and increasingly, of course, in the rest of the world, as capitalism has slowly spread its way across the world, so people are taught individualism. I work for me. That's who I work for. I do not work for the good of society. I don't even work for the good of my family. I work for me. That's who I work for. It's my job. It's my career. It's my profession. It's my life to do with as I please. And it's all about me. But, of course, it's not about you, stupid. Ross Gittins is the economics editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. Generally, the Sydney Morning Herald and I don't like each other all that much, but I like Ross Gittins' writings. He comes from a Salvation Army background, and though he has left it, it still peeps through in his writings. He can't get away from the sense of moral justice and righteousness that he was taught in his very early childhood by his parents. 
As, an, as a teacher, he is brilliant because he makes economics simple, which is something that requires you to actually be brilliant, and can explain it to the non-economists. He writes, though, about the difficulties and the disadvantages of economics as a way of thinking. And of recent times, has pointed out that economists are interested in utility. They're interested in how you get something done. And what it is that we are supposed to be living for as utilitarians is happiness. So what does your work do for your happiness? What happiness do you find in work? Looking at the writings of psychologists on well-being and happiness, and especially the positive psychologist, Professor Martin Seligman, who writes about happiness and who is the great guru of positive psychology, he points out that there are three kinds of working lives. And each of these kinds of working lives has a different happiness when you investigate the people who are involved in it. Firstly, there are jobs. Secondly, careers. Thirdly, hobbies. Firstly, jobs. A job is what a person does for money. That's what a job is. Many people, most people, do jobs. That is, uh, you pay me, I'll lay some pavers on the ground, or I'll build a wall, or I'll fix the plumbing, or I'll change the lights, or I'll sweep the carpet, or I'll put out the garbage. You pay me, and I will do this job. You pay me to work for 40 hours doing jobs that you direct me to. The only reason I turn up is because you're going to pay me. The only reason I do the things that I do is because you pay me. You tell me what to do, I will do it. I am paid to do my job. And that is the aim. The people who do jobs are basically happy, is what, he is, what the Western world has discovered. Then there are careerists. Careerists don't do jobs. Careerists follow a trajectory across their life. And the trajectory across their life moves them from one job to another, so to speak, but in an upwardly mobile fashion. As they shift from one industry to another, they'll even shift from one profession to another as they climb the ladder to some success. As they climb in their upward mobility, they increase in their pay, they increase in their power, they increase in their position. And they have a personal mobility. Yeah, I mean, here is a normal kind of classic career. You leave university and become, um, pick a topic, civil engineer, that will do. Any civil engineers here? Good, I can speak freely. <laughs> Any environmental engineers here? Yes, they're just civil engineers without dump trucks. Um, the civil engineer, you see, he goes and gets a job as a civil engineer. By the age of about 27, most engineers are not engineering anymore. They are then in management. They manage other people in the job. And by their about the time they're 35, they've become executives. But once you're a manager of other people, what job you're doing no longer matters in terms of the industry you're in. So while you work in a road factory as a civil engineer, making roads and, and laying pavements and things like that, once you become a manager, you move across to a clothing industry and you manage people making clothes. And so you move into minimum management and become an executive in a chocolate factory. 
making chocolates until you become the CEO of a media company. And at the end of five years as a CEO of a media company, you become a company director of a travel agency. You see, you've just moved from one industry to another industry and from one task set to the next task set as you slowly climbed. I mean, halfway through, you got a master's of business administration because engineering was left way, way behind. Now, the people who climb the ladder of career, the psychologists have found, are miserable and unhappy people. Happier are the people who just do the job at the bottom of the ladder than those who get on the escalator to go up and up and up. Because what drives them is fulfillment, satisfaction, self-fulfillment, self-identity, finding themselves and improving themselves. And they always fail. The further you go, the more you see you have to go until you reach the very top and then there's some young guru behind you shoving you off the ladder. There is nowhere to go that is satisfied. I spoke to some executives in England a couple of years ago, and they say they go to work every day, every Monday, looking if there's an envelope on their desk, because they know they're being paid too much, and they know that the board is going to sack them one time, they're going to retrench them, give them a payout and move them aside because they could get three people to do the job they're doing at the pay they're being paid. So they know it's going to come, so every Monday they arrive and they look to see if the letter's arrived or not. They know they're about to be pensioned off. You reach the top and no one wants you anymore. There's a third way of working, that is to do your hobby. The hobbyist worker is completely different, says Gittins. The hobbyist worker works because they want to do it. It's got nothing to do with the pay, and it's got nothing to do with the prestige, it's got nothing to do with finding yourself. You would do it even if you weren't paid for it. The professional footballer, uh, the professional musician, uh, the artist. You see, a footballer will play football whether he's paid or not. If he's being paid, he's very happy to be paid for it. But if he wasn't being paid, what would he do on Saturday afternoon? Well, he'd play football. That's what he likes doing. It's got nothing. He's just happy to be paid to do what he wants to do anyway. And so there's all kinds of people like that, especially in the creative arts, who, who get paid to do what they want to do. There are some people who are, do a job that you may think is a career that are like that, but they won't be careerists. So there are some people who are doctors, who actually want to be a doctor. If they weren't a doctor, they'd be a... St. John's ambulance person, you know, or that, that, they just like a vet. There are some vets who just like looking after animals. That's their hobby. And they don't start off as a vet looking after animals and then become managers and move over to organise a, a pet food company and then move on to chocolate so as to feed the humans. <laughs> they're, they're not like that. They, they start their professional life look hands-on animals and they finish their professional life with their hands-on animals because they're... It's their hobby is what they like doing. It's just that's how they like doing it. Now, the hobbyists are the happiest workers in the world. They're being paid to do what they like doing. Of course, they're the happiest people to do what they like doing. Unfortunately for you, my dear friends, though fortunately you're here to hear this unfortunate news, unfortunately for you, 
the people who go to university are being trained to be careerists. You haven't come to university in order to do a job. You could have done that straight out of school. And most of you haven't come for your hobby. You come to the course you got into. Some of you, it's been your lifetime dream. You always just, there's nothing in your life that you wanted to be more than an accountant. <laughs> it's possible. I think hard about it, but it's possible. But most people, no, that's the course I got into. This looks like a good way forward. And when you get out, it is a good way forward. It's the way to go up the climb the ladder in Australian culture. But it involves, you see, not just increased pay, power and position, it also involves personal nobility. You go interstate, you go overseas. Well, that's a good part of the job. No, that's a lousy part of the job. Because you lose your friends, you lose your home, you lose your roots and your basis of life. And you lose the stability and you lose yourself as you become the servants of the, of, of the impersonal corporation. Always seeking to find yourself by improving yourself, but never actually finding yourself because you lost yourself when you left home and left the state, left the city, left the family, have wandered off three years in London, two years in New York, a year in Berlin. It sounds really classy and wonderful and it's dreadful. It's appalling because true friendship is not found by dropping in and out of cities around the world and talking to old friends on Skype. Friendship and love, the things that matter, family, the things that really count, they're not there, you see. You've sacrificed them for what? To get ahead. To get ahead where? Well, to get ahead. Ahead's ahead. That's where I've got to get. It's nowhere. And yet that's what university is about. University used to be about an education. But that's a silly idea today. We don't bother with education, do we? I mean, that's, that's the last of the things. University is now training you for professional life. That's what it's about. I, I went to a graduation. I don't go to them very often. Very rarely these days do I go to graduation. I went to a graduation of the arts faculty of the University of Sydney. Now, if ever there's a non-job available, it's an arts graduate from the University of Sydney. That is pure education. But more than half the arts degrees that were being awarded that day had something tacked onto them. He's got a degree in arts and library management, a degree in arts and public journalism, a degree in arts and public relations, a degree in arts in... But it was all about jobs in the arts faculty of the old Stone University. Ridiculous. What has happened to education? What has happened to learning for the sake of learning? What has happened? That has gone out the window. The University of New South Wales years ago stopped having an open day. They had a careers day. <laughs> Says it all. They no longer call the, the Faculty of Science the Faculty of Science. That just means knowledge. We're not interested in knowledge. It was the Faculty of Science and Technology. Because technology gives you jobs. Knowledge, it just gives you knowledge. And who wants knowledge? We want jobs. And what do your parents want you to be at university for? So that you can swan around reading books and learning things? Well, some parents are like that, aren't they? 
but not many. So, what does the Bible teach about work? Well, here we go for the main section. Here's the paradigm shift before we come home to see the application. First and foremost, God is a worker. Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, God is a worker. And therefore, nothing wrong with work, everything right with it. Thus says the heavens and the earth, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Our God is a working God. For the Greeks of the ancient world, that is an absolute abomination. That just shows your God's not worth having. I mean, the true gentleman has soft hands, never done an honest day's work. So they are fairly soft, really. You, 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 you shake hands with a farmer. I shake hands at the door of the cathedral. It's St Andrew's Cathedral where I'm the pastor there. You see right in town hall, all kinds of people come there. And especially during, say, Easter time when you have farmers down for the royal show, etc. They come out the door and you, they shake hands and they put out this lump of wood and they feel my soft and soppy thing and I realise, yeah, I never work with my hands. I mean, pressing, uh, pressing letters on a keyboard is hardly working with your hands. And so, to a Greek, I would be a true gentleman, because gentlemen don't work, they don't do manual, here are slaves for that. You know, we talk, ah, the epitome of it. But our God, he's a worker. He is a working God. Extraordinary notion for the ancient world, a God who works. And we as humans are created in God's image. And so when he created us, just back over in chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. Not only does God work, but we in his image are to be workers as well. We too are to work. And so in chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. We are created to work because we are created in the image of the God who works. So work is a fundamental part of our life as marriage is a fundamental part of our life. Just as we are to multiply and fill the earth, so we are to work and dominion over the earth. That is what we are here. That is why we are who we are and will do what we do. But thirdly, you'll notice that God's work leads him to rest. And this is very important, friends, to grasp hold of. That is, the two things, work and rest, are separable. They are different things. Now it gets tricky, especially if you've got a Pharisaic mind who wants to try and minimise what the Bible is saying and rub out the distinctions of the Bible. What is it? So you say, well, what am I doing when I'm resting? Well, read a novel, but I'm an English teacher. Isn't that work? Well, reading a novel might be work for an English teacher. It might be a completely new experience for an engineer. There's <laughs> different things, you see. And so when is work work and when is not work work? 
you know the difference, don't be a Pharisee. You do things because you have to, because it's your job. But at the end of six days, on the seventh day, you stop doing your job. Because that's how God worked. And that is how God wants us to work. To keep work and rest in balance and keep work and rest as separate things. Really important. You've been on one of those holidays where you take with you some of the books that you've got to write for the essay when you get back from holidays. And every day when you open your bag to get out your swimming costume, you see the books there and they make you feel guilty. And so you close it quickly and put your hand in and get the swimming costume out without looking. <laughs> and by the end of the week, you felt guilty every day of the week and you still haven't read one book for the essay. When you go on your holidays, leave your books behind. Leave your computer behind. Leave your phone behind. Leave my phone behind, I'll just die. It's an extension of my very being as a person. If you want a holiday, have a holiday. Take the ball and chain and unhinge it and leave it behind so that you can go and experience life without a constant cyber communication. It can be done. Humans have existed without electronic cyber communication. And it might refresh you somewhat not to be in constant checking mode and to find out what's been said on Facebook to whom and what. But just go and spend time resting. But the two are separate and they need to be kept separate. As a day a week you need to have. Work, you see, is not all that there is to God. Our God is a working God, but there's more to God than work. He also is a resting God. And there's more to God than just this world. He made this world for his rest, to enjoy the work that he has made. So many people become such workaholics that they never actually get to enjoy the work that they've done. They just press on to the next and to the next and to the next instead of enjoying the results and the fruit of their work. God does, we should. And so we're to work and to rest like that. Come across to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're in the Ten Commandments. When we're in Exodus chapter 20 and we read verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and all that is in them. And he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. As God works and rests, so we are to work and to rest. Indeed, that is the way the world functions. Look down to Exodus uh, chapter 23, just over the page there, chapter 23 of Exodus, verse 10. Exodus 23, verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. 
Everybody needs to rest. The animals need the rest. The land needs the rest. The world is not created to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's created with a need for rest and refreshment. And we who are farming the lands of the world must continue to refresh the lands of the world and not just rip it off without any concern for the consequences. And our animals need to be rest and refreshed and not just beaten on and on. And the poor people especially. Notice how it's concerned for the alien, the son of your servant woman, your maid, your ox, your ass, all the people who are in your charge and in your care, you must make sure they get rest. But more than that, come across to Exodus 31. Exodus 31, this is a bit shocking for our ears to hear, this one, 31 verse 12. Exodus 31, and the Lord said to Moses, verse 12, verse 13, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and, your, and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoops. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, shall that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall you work and be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. He gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai the two tablets of testimony. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Taking a day off a week was to show that the people of Israel were the people of the Creator. And so if they weren't going to be the people of the Creator, the people of Israel, then they should be cut off from Israel. They should actually be cut off from life itself. Because the Sabbath was the very sign that I'm a person of God. That I do not think I am God running the world all the time. I can let go. I am not indispensable. God can look after the world on the Sabbath day. The world can go on without me. This is very hard for some people to grasp. Uh, a man I know of had a terrible heart attack, was rushed into intensive care. And the hospital rang up his wife, who's a very busy lawyer in town, and said, your husband's in intensive care, and uh, it's touch and go. And she says, okay, thank you very much for telling me. Uh, ring me back if he dies. Uh, if he gets better, uh, that would be helpful if you'd ring me and tell me that. And they said, aren't you coming in? And she says, well, I can't do anything. I may as well stay here in the office, keep working. Boy, I'm glad I'm not married to her. I mean, in one sense, logically, she's right. What can she do? love him that might be an idea mightn't it i know the man who as he was dying of cancer his family gathered around him told them to all shut up because he was on the phone trading his shares half an hour before he died he was still trading his shares that's madness isn't it what are you doing it for what's the point what's the purpose you're going to be dead in half an hour and you're still trading your shares You've got the last chance to speak to your family and you're speaking to your stockbroker. 
And that's absurd. But yet, there are people who cannot grasp the notion of rest. They cannot grab the notion that you work to live. You don't live to work. It's very simple. Who are these people that get so obsessed with work? Well, they're not the people who do a job, that's for sure. <laughs> Sometimes they're the hobbyist, but basically they're the careerists who find their significance, their fulfilment, their person in being the professional. And everybody around encourages them to it. Uh, hands up those who are psychologists here, doing psychology. There's only one or two of you, that's good. I wonder if any of you do anything. I keep asking here. <laughs> Maybe you're scared to admit that you are involved in... Anyway, see, psychology has been prostituted by these big companies. They've discovered that if you offer more money to the average graduate, they don't work any harder. So what they do is every six months they call you in and they say, well, come on, we'll have a consultation to help you develop your career and we'll tell you the things you need to improve on and the things that you... And they give you a massage psychologically so that you feel really good and really important because then you'll run harder for them. But don't worry, the day there's a downturn in the market, you'll be sacked. They'll hold out to you the carrot. If you stay here and keep working like this, put a few more hours in, stay back a couple of nights more than usual... And I can see you'll be an associate in a few years' time, a partner a few years after that. But there's a downturn in the market, so we've got to let you go now. Because they know how to get people to work because they've studied the psychology of what makes people run faster. They've done it in laboratories with rats. God says work and rest. The two are separate. And he says, my people in particular must be seen as those who live my way, working and resting. But it's more than that. It's also because the Sabbath rest is the picture of heaven itself. See, when the people of Israel are going across the wilderness, all the 40 years in the wilderness, if you remember, they are going for the promised land. And the promised land is called the land of rest. That's when you'll get rest from all your labours. That's when you'll get rest from all your enemies. That's when you'll be at peace and at rest. And so God is promising them the land of rest. And because they sin on the way, God says, I will never let this generation enter into my rest. It's in Psalm 95, you'll find it, Psalm 95. But it's all through the book of Deuteronomy as well. That is, the Sabbath is a picture of heaven. So in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, it talks about the rest that you can enter into. There are, remains a rest, God's rest. Remember creation and Abraham and how the story grew under David Solomon, how it fell away under the prophets who kept on telling us the great things that were coming and then when the Lord Jesus Christ came, up we come to the kingdom of heaven. Up we come to the promised rest of God that is now available for anyone who will hear the gospel, repent and be forgiven, born again and taken to seated with Christ in the heavenly places even while we continue on living in this world. But as long as we continue on living in this world, this world is a world that needs six days work, one day rest. It operates because of work, because we're here to work it. The world doesn't work itself, humans work the world. It's a very important thing. This is one of those ecological things that people need to work out. You know, every time I watch one of the television shows about some animal, I'm always told it's dying and it's human's fault. As if no, no species ever became extinct until humans made them so. 
Hundreds of we don't have to make them extinct, they make themselves extinct. That's the character of life. Who are the people who rescue the, the animals? Why, it's humans. We're the ones who are responsible to care for them. We're the ones who are responsible to look after this world, to have dominion over this world, to look after this world, to care for this world. Cows don't look after this world. Lions don't look after this world. Elephants don't look after this world. No animal ever looks after the world except humans. We're the animals who have been created to look after this world. And that's our job. That's our responsibility to be doing so. And you're going to do it in this world. You've got to do it six days. You've got to rest yourself one day. And you've got to rest everybody one day. Everybody needs rest. Because we live in our rest. And we work in order to live. And our resting is participating in the heavenly rest that we are going to in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when God created, he created a gardener and his helper in chapter 2 of, uh, of Genesis. His helper to help him with the work and to help him fill the earth by multiplying. The ideal, suitable, fitting helper. She had to be human. No animal could do what was required. Only a human could do it. And only a human could share with him in the reproduction of humanity to give us the ability spread across the world and to fill it. But with the fall into sin and the fall into the judgment in Genesis 3, we have a shift. We now have hostility and salvation. Come with me to Genesis 3. Hostility and salvation. Look at the judgment of God in verse 14. Genesis 3, right at the beginning of your Bible, not hard to find. Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Hostility between the woman and the serpent who ganged up to mislead the man. And that hostility though is a hostility of salvation because her offspring is going to crush the serpent. To the woman, he says in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So there's now hostility between the man and the woman. There's now hostility between the man and his work. Mondayitis was created in the Garden of Eden. But the woman hostility with the serpent is a hostility that creates salvation. When you're reading Genesis, especially for the first time with fresh eyes, when you're reading Genesis, the end of chapter 3, verse 24, could be the end of the Bible. God created the world, he put man to look after the world, man didn't look after the world, so God says, you're going to die. End of story. Except that there's something about the woman's seed is going to crush the serpent. 
So chapter 4 starts off, now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And you think, this is the man who's going to crush the serpent. He doesn't. But you think he might. That is, the salvation does not come by work. The salvation comes by the birth of the son. Hostility will be found in work as hostility is found in human relationships, as hostility is found between the woman and the serpent. But salvation is found by the birth of a son. Salvation is going to come through the woman as sin came through the man. For the man, though, sweat on his brow, thistles and thorns he will grow. It's going to be a difficult environment, hostile to the gardener, and so the gardener's work will never finish. No matter how much you seek to overcome the difficulties of this world, the difficulties will keep coming back. You cannot ultimately eradicate maggots because you keep dying and providing food for them. In the end, the maggots win. That is the nature of the world we are in. And so now you can use work for good or for ill. In chapter 4, a man comes across, comes along called Lamech. It's towards the end of chapter 4, down verse 19. Lamech took two wives, the first polygamist. The name of one was Ada, the other was Zillah. Ada bought Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, verse 20. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bought Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. See, he's a nasty man. He's an awful man. He's a dreadful man. But he's the father of civilization. He's the creator of the musical instruments. He's the father of those who work with irons and, and with, with metals. He's the father of agriculture. That is now good and ill are all mixed in together around works. And so the book of Proverbs has any number of proverbs about the sluggard who won't do anything and will starve with his family. And you are encouraged to go and look at the ant and see how the ant works and say, well, if the ant can work, how much more a human should work hard? But sluggards, why, they destroy themselves. The sluggard rolls on his bed like a door swings on a hinge. The sluggard puts his hand into the bowl. It wearies him to lift it up to his mouth. The sluggard, over and again, those wonderful images of the sluggard in the book of Proverbs, they're all bad. That is, we have two different kinds of problems. One is the workaholic who doesn't understand that God is in control, doesn't understand that we live for rest. The other is the totally lazy person who doesn't do anything at all. And he'll never get off his bottom to actually do anything, but just expects the world to look after him. Whereas what we are to do is to work diligently, and rest diligently so that we may eat and live and provide for others. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that it's the responsibility of parents to provide for their children. 
And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're told that you should be providing for your elderly relatives. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, you're given the real estate agent's verse. They're not the insurance agent's verse. The insurance Every insurance man who's ever come to me has used this verse on me. Anyone who doesn't provide for his relatives is worse than an unbeliever. And you can see why that would be a good insurance sales pitch to a clergyman, you see. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be worse than an unbeliever. Are you providing for your relatives, especially in your imminent death? So you should sign up for our... But yet we work not only for ourselves, but for our families. And for the widow. And for the orphan. But some people use work for salvation. Come to Genesis 11. Genesis 11. I pause to let the paper roll. I know some of you have Bibles with very tiny font, but you couldn't get from Genesis 3 to 11 on the same page. Are we there now? Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and the people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there and they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they, had brick, they, as, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come let us build ourselves a city, a towel with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See what they're trying to do? By the united effort of all humanity, there was an attempt to build a tower that would take them to heaven and would hold them all united, never under judgment. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. See what the Tower of Babel event is about? It's about men trying to save themselves and all humanity by their work. That, of course, is called the United Nations. That is called the Olympic movement. That is called the world of scholarship, the attempt to overcome the diversities and disparities of humanity, to all speak one language. They even created a language in the 19th century called, I think the 19th century, early 20th, called Esperanto. So we all would learn this one language so that we could all talk together and overcome what God did in the Tower of Babel. The only trouble is it was everybody's second language and no one could be bothered with it. But there's still an Esperanto society around. Anyone knows how to speak Esperanto? No, well, that's not so bad. I wonder if any of you have arms. Uh, you're an armless-looking crowd. Um, Esperanto is just the language, you see. That didn't, but it's all attempts to get one world working together, creating peace and harmony and unity so as to save humanity, and it will never work because the way humanity is to be saved is by the birth of the son of the woman. That's how God says salvation works. And so people today are still trying to use their work to save humanity. Howard only told you half the story. You see this great flower grower who went across to Tanzania to teach the Tanzanians how to grow crops. 
when he was there in the rural development centre, he discovered that the, uh, the locals knew how to grow crops. So why were the people so hungry? Why were they so much in poverty? Why was there so much difficulty? If they knew the technology of looking after their animals and looking after their crops, what was the problem? The problem was corruption. The problem was warfare. The problem was people burning each other's crops. The problem was stealing. The problem was killing each other's cattle and stealing each other's cattle. The problem was you can't run a society that feeds a society when people aren't going to live by the laws of the society. When there's no submission to one another and to law and to righteousness, then you actually can't feed the population. You see, corruption destroys societies more. And so... When he returned after one of his trips back to Australia, he added on to the rural centre the Bible college. Because by teaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you change the hearts of people. When you change the hearts of people, then they will use their agriculture, which they already know how to use, profitably for the welfare of other people. But as long as the hearts are not changed, poverty will always be there. So the way to feed the population is teach the Bible. Now, of course, the world doesn't understand that. So if you go to UNESCO or any, you go to the United Nations or any aid agency in the world and say, can you give me money to start a Bible college? Or go and say, can you give me money to start an agricultural college? Guess which one they'll give to? Everybody gives to the agricultural college. Who would give to a Bible college? Well, anybody who wants to solve the problem in Africa would give to a Bible college because corruption is destroying Africa. That's what's really destroying it. That's the consistent pattern. I spoke to a farmer in New South Wales in the middle of the drought. His whole area was in terrible drought. I said, how are you getting on, Pete? He said, not a problem. And I said, but there's drought everywhere. Farmers are going out of business. The farms are being sold up. How are you going? He said, we're quite under control, thanks. Not a problem. I said, how come? He says, well, they always push their farms to the absolute maximum. He says, I never do. I'm always, let, always happy with less money, always happy not to push everything all the time. I always understock, never overstock. I never fully stock. I understock. And because of that, my farm is doing all right, even in the midst of a drought. Whereas those who have always overstocked, they're long gone. Those who have stocked to the fill, they now can't cope under the drought conditions. My farmers never had a problem, even in the droughts, because we've looked after the farm properly. Now, why? What was different? That's the Christian man, you see. He's not greedy for money. He's not working to make big profits. He's caring for the world that God has placed in his, in his care. And he made enough money to live. He was never as rich as the others, but he wasn't bankrupt either. See, where is the global financial crisis come from the greed of rich people that's where it's come from people vastly overstretching themselves and have put loads and loads of people out of work and in misery all across the world and we haven't seen the end of it yet the problems in the human heart my brothers and sisters that's where the difficulty is and so corruption of work greed and theft Come to Amos 8. Well, this is a little harder for you to find, isn't it? So I'll give you just a little bit more time to find it. Uh, Amos comes after the big three prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. 
Mind you, Joel's so short, you might miss him as you go from Hosea to Amos. And Amos chapter 8. There's some bits of Amos I love reading, especially about the cows of Bashan. It's just a lovely way of describing the women. But in Amos 8, verse 4, 8, 4, Hear this, you who trample on the needy. Bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah and small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. They just want to trade, 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 trade. There's a day off. Do we have to have a day off? Can't we keep trading? When's it going to finish? I want to get back into trading. So we can trade, 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 trade. And in the process, you'll know it's the little people, the poor people, that they will always rip off. And the product they're giving is not a genuine product. It was always cheap, and the scales are wrong as well. My friends, this is New South Wales. This is Sydney. This is Wollongong. Our state government wants to get rid of public holidays. They don't want public holidays. Why don't they? Because the retailers don't want it. Why don't the retailers want it? Because they want to trade 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when you trade seven days a week, 24 hours a day, who does the work? Little people. Whose family life is interrupted? Little people's. The poor people who can get no job other than working, shacking shelves in midnight. You see, the, the Boxing Day sales, aren't they terrific, the Boxing Day sales? They're horrible, absolutely horrible things. Because up until Christmas Eve, they're trading, aren't they? And then when you arrive on Boxing Day... Everything in the shop has been given a new price. Who put all those price tags on? And when did they put those price tags on? On Christmas Day. And do you think it was the, 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 the shareholders? Do you think it was the chief executive officer? Do you think it was the, the, the chiefs and the bosses? Do you think it was the board directors that did that? No, it was the little people who can't get any other job, who have to leave their family on Christmas Day so as to go in and prepare the sales so that the wealthy can make money out of them. That's what our government wants to get rid of. They want to get rid of Boxing Day as a public holiday. They really would like to get rid of Christmas Day as a public holiday, but they effectively have done so. They want to get rid of Easter Day. They want to get rid of Good Friday. They want to get rid of every public holiday they can. Because they don't care for the community, they don't care for the poor, they don't care for the little people, they care for making money. So they want to trade, trade, trade. Corruption's not in Africa, it's in Macquarie Street, it's in Canberra, it's in your local council area, where they constantly are overruling the concerns of the local community to put up shops where they shouldn't be, to put up extra stories on overshadowing your land. They don't care if there's money to be made. They will do it. Greed runs our society. Theft runs our society. So what is work about? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is the ambivalent one, isn't it? Ecclesiastes? Yeah, oh, look, I just flipped it. came straight up. I'll help you. It's page 668. Just go back to Ecclesiastes. Verse two. I love it when I just do that one flip. Boy, he knows his Bible. Just found it in one hit. Aren't you terrified when you're in a Bible study group with someone who can just open the Bible at any point at any time? 
They are really scary people, aren't they? Just hope they know what's in it as well as how to find it. Ecclesiastes 2, pick it up verse 18. I hate it. This is a man who's made wonderful things and done all this work. He says, I hated all my toil. 2.18 Ecclesiastes, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he'll be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart to despair over all the toil of my labours under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man for all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart doesn't rest. This also is vanity. Oh, that's pretty depressing stuff, isn't it? But look what he then goes on to say. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I found, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and have any enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to one who pleases God. And this also is vanity, striving after wind. Friends, it's great pleasure of God if you can enjoy your work. But work is in the end not enjoyable. It's meaningless. All your labour will come to nothing. One of my friends, who, one of my colleagues at the cathedral, was a project manager for a building firm that built Darling Harbour. And he worked on the buildings at Darling Harbour. And in the last two years, he's watched the buildings that he laboured over 10 hours, 12 hours a day for three years pull down and be replaced with other ones. All his work has come to rubble. Okay, I'm up to 2F. And we only go to F, and then 3, and then we go to question time. But the important things are about to be said. We're going to get the rubber hitting the road soon. And, but under 2F, I've still got to get some more details in. Seven points from the New Testament. One. Jesus was a techno. Tectone, he was called, which is translated carpenter. Uh, but it was actually the word tectone from which we get our technologies and the rest. He was a worker with his hands. He was not a Greek, not a soft man. Secondly, John the Baptist had tax collectors and soldiers coming, what should we do? And he didn't say, leave your work. He said, work honestly and don't abuse your position. However, thirdly, Jesus came to men who were fishing and he said, leave your nets, come follow me. And to a tax collector and he said, leave your, 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 your tax office and come follow me. That is, there's a time to leave your work and a time to stay doing your work honestly. Not all the disciples had to leave their work, but some, the core disciple group, the ones that were going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, they did have to leave their work. Fourthly, Jesus attacks materialism. There's a horrendous attack on materialism 
in uh, chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, the second half of chapter 6 from verse 19 to verse 34 of Matthew's Gospel, is an out-and-out attack on materialism that reads so much of the problems of our Western society. There's one verse of it you may well know where he says, you cannot love God and money. He doesn't say you shouldn't. He says you cannot. Now, of course, when we hear that, nearly everybody I know says, phew, that's all right, I don't love money. Because we don't have money anymore, we just have numbers in a bank account, don't we? And I don't love numbers unless I'm a mathematical nerd. And so it doesn't... Whoa, I'm sorry. There are mathematicians here. Oh, I can count them. Um, and so how do you love money? It doesn't... See, money is power. It's a liquid form of power. It's the power to get things done. If I have money, I can buy food. If I have money, I can buy clothes. I can buy CDs. If I have money, I can go to a motel and I can sleep in the bed and I can walk away and let some other poor person come and clean up my mess after me because I have money. And it's a form of power that can be shoved into all kinds of different directions. And, and that, that's what our numbers in our bank account are. So I don't need money, I just need a piece of plastic. I give them the piece of plastic and they change the numbers. But as a result of changing the numbers, they give me things, they do things for me, they serve me, they, they look after me. Money is my power. If you love money, you cannot love God. If you love God, you cannot love money. Your power or God's power, take your choice, but you can't have both. Jesus attacks materialism. However, the scripture also talks, though, Point number five, the New Testament also talks of hard work and reward. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Timothy 2, note takers, you'll find what is called distributive justice. The labourer is worthy of his hire. You mustn't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain because the labourer is worthy of his hire. And so to pay people for the work they do is a right and proper thing, and to refuse to pay people for the work they do is a wrong thing. Point number six in the New Testament of the seven points is the command and reason for work. Point seven is the reason for leaving work. Now these ones are the ones I need to slow down and deal with. Come with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and for some reason that we do not know the Thessalonians had were tempted or some of them were to give up work you can imagine it in a sense that is you know that the end has come the Lord Jesus Christ has taken us to heaven and he's going to return soon well why do I bother needing to work any longer I mean if you knew the end of the world was coming on August the 1st so as to all the horses can have a special birthday, if you knew that the end of the world was coming on August the 1st, would you bother studying for exams beforehand? Would you bother going back to lectures? Would you bother writing an essay? Would you bother? I mean, what would you do if you knew the end of the world was August the 1st? Well, sell your property. I mean, people who don't believe, they get the property, you get the money, you can have a world trip before the world ends. See, see the last sights before they're gone. I mean, what would you do if you knew the world was going to end? 
Well, we know the world is going to end, but very importantly, we never know when the world is going to end. It could be tonight. could be in 10,000 years' time. I have no idea. So we've got to live as if the world is coming to an end while we continue to live in this world. So here is a group of people who are not wanting to continue to work. They, they, that may not have been the reason. They just might have been lazy slobs. I don't know the reason. But whatever the reason, Paul has to persuade them to go back to work. Now, what reason could we give for a person to go back to work? What is the arguments that would be persuading for people to go back to work? Listen to the arguments of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3, and we pick it up at verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. What are the reasons for work? The command of the Lord Jesus Christ, the command of the Apostle, the encouragement of the Apostle, the traditions of the Apostles, the example of the Apostles, that they weren't idle, that idlers become busybodies, the, 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 the justice of eating the bread that you have earned and the injustice of eating bread that you haven't earned, the payment for food, the toiling example that he gave night and day the desire not to burden anybody if they will not work let them not eat what kind of work is this describing it's not describing a hobby and it's not describing a career it's describing a job that's what christian work is doing your job getting paid for the work you do you do not find your fulfillment, your satisfaction, your significance, your security in your work. You find your food and your clothes and your shelter in your work. But once you start finding your significance, your, your person, your, your life's meaning and purpose in your work, you've already lost the plot Christianly. Now that paradigm shift, my friends, saves you from a million questions and a, sorry, a load of questions and a million heartaches. Because I just do a job. I do an honest job. That's what I do. And there's no better that I'm a street sweeper or that I'm a, a doorman or that I'm a taxi driver or that I'm a plumber or that I'm the bank manager. I just do a job. They're just jobs to do that people will pay you to do. When people tell me they've been led to this job or to that job, I've noticed that the Holy Spirit is incredibly upwardly mobile and middle class. 
because he never leads people to be street sweepers. He never leads people to clean gutters. He always leads people to be doctors, dentists, lawyers. The Holy Spirit is not a middle-class spirit. The Holy Spirit wants you to work. Honest work with your hands that you may give to those in... Oh, that's Ephesians. I'm not allowed to mention that. (laughs) But the character of the work is just honest work with your hands. You do a job. That's what you do. And to do a job is a good and honourable thing that must be must be praised for it because it's what humans were created to do was to work like that and to rest because work is not all there is to life in fact you work in order to live but that's what we're created to do and that's how we're created to do it but the lawyer is not more important than the street sweeper the doctor is not more important than the plumber in fact world health is created not by doctors world health is created by plumbers If you want to create good health in a community, get clean water and good sewerage systems working and you'll create health in the community. Heart specialists, they just look after filthy rich old fat men like me. (laughs) They do this marvellous surgery, incredible surgery, and they keep alive this person, that person and some other person. But a plumber keeps alive a whole city of people. Plumbing is much more important than surgery. But we pay surgeons mega bucks. And plumbers a lot too, I've noticed. <laughs> but does your mother boast? Oh my Jenny, she's going out with a plumber. Oh my Jenny, she's going out with a doctor. Which one sounds better? Oh, we're so proud of we're so proud of Mary. You know she's a lawyer. Oh, we're so proud of Mary. She's a checkout chick. (laughs) Being replaced by machines. My friends, be proud of Mary, the checkout chick. She's doing an honest job. And she's working the work. She's doing the job. She's every bit as honourable as the lawyer. In fact, given the career code and corruption practices of lawyers, she may well be considerably more honourable than them. See the nature of work? Work is work. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just work. Should we do it? Yes. Should everybody do it? Yes. Should anybody not do it? No, everybody should do it. Let there be no idlers, no busybodies. Everybody should work. It's a Christian responsibility to work. But we don't find our meaning in our work, our significance in our work. We find our meaning and significance in the Lord Jesus Christ and his great plans to bring salvation to mankind. That's where the meaning and significance is found. Not in building a skyscraper, not in representing some client in a court, not in in the works of this world. They're good and right and proper things in themselves. There's nothing wrong with a skyscraper. Some of them are pretty ugly, but there's nothing inherently wrong with them or building one. But my significance is not caught in my skyscraper. My significance is caught in the fact that I'm a son of God. How do you introduce yourself? By your career? Hello, I'm Fred. I'm an engineer. I'm a farmer, I'm a, no, I'm Fred who does engineering, but engineering doesn't define me, I am more than an engineer, I'm not just an engineer, but yet we do define people in terms of, oh yeah, he's the doctor, oh yeah, he's the dentist, oh yeah, he's the, no, dentistry is what he does, 
But that's not who he is, and that's not what he is. He's a child of God. He's a creature created by God in, in God's image. He is one that Jesus loved and died to save. He is a son of eternal life. There's a whole host of things you could say about him which are infinitely more important than he's a dentist. So the reasons for work that the New Testament gives are just the mundane, normal reasons for work. Now the reason then for a Christian to go to university if you're not going to go for education, which is a byproduct that some people come by accidentally, the reason to go to university is to find jobs that are more enjoyable. Because most of our jobs are more enjoyable than the hard work jobs. And jobs that pay us better so that we have more freedom to spend time. But if the job pays you better by making you work longer, then it actually is a bad deal. If, if you've got to work beyond the 40 hours a week, then you're not, you might as well get a job doing something that takes you 40 hours a week. I mean, why live for work? Why not take a lesser job? I, I used to find it with students who would say to me, I've got to work on the weekends, otherwise I won't pass my exams. The answer is very simple to that. If you've got to work seven days a week in order to pass your exams, you're in a course that's too hard for you. Drop back. Go and do arts. There's always other courses you could do that are not as demanding as the one you're doing. Because if you have to work seven days a week in order to pass your course, how do you think you're going to do the job? Because the job is more demanding than the course. Remember, university was more demanding than high school, and primary school was less demanding than high school. Each time you move up, the job gets more demanding. If you can't do the job with a day off each week, you can't study for the course with a day off each week, you won't be able to do the job and have a day off each week. Quit now while you're ahead. Change to something easier. And when you work, work the hours. And then stop working. And don't take it home with you. Don't inflict it on the family. You say, Philip, if I do that, I won't get ahead. Good, don't get ahead. It doesn't matter. If you do an honest day's work, you do an honest day's work. That's all is required of you. And if that's not good enough for the boss, he's an evil boss because he wants something dishonest. That's the alternative to an honest day's work. And here is a problem for us, isn't it? Because that puts us fairly much at odds with the society around about us. That makes it life very difficult for us. When would it ever be right for someone not to work? There are some times when they get old, who and why leaves work? Well, in terms of paid employment, the wife and mother may leave work because the work of running the home is the work that she's called to do. I never can really understand feminists. You know, if I'm paid as a nanny to look after your children, then I have a job. Whereas if you stay at home and look after your own children, you're just a housewife. What's the difference? The difference, one is paid, the other is not paid. Paid is good, not paid is bad. I'm sorry, that's just crass materialism. That's ridiculous. Yeah, if you have a nanny to look after your children because there's some other job you want to do, you haven't sinned, you haven't done anything wrong, but I'm just pointing out the absurdity of it. The whole business of women going to work is just part of materialism. 
It's part of the consumerist, materialist society that we're in. And where you think you have the freedom to go to work or the freedom to stay at home, that's being taken from you. Already the Melbourne Institute is now writing papers say that every woman needs to go to work and they want all mothers of children who are at school to be back at work. 50 years ago, hardly any of them did. Now, because we are a filthy rich country, every one of them has to. Not by choice, but by government fiat and requirement. Thank you, feminism. You've done a world of good for us. Not. <laughs> not that it's wrong for a wife and mother to work. You hear me? I'm not saying it's a wrong thing to do. But I think it's a reasonable thing to choose to stay home and look after children as your work. And it is real work, let me assure you. Hard work. But there's one other person who is allowed to be free from work, and that's the gospel preacher. For Jesus calls the fishermen to leave their nets and come follow him. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 speaks of the right to live of preaching the gospel, a right that he didn't follow himself, but a right that he had and that the other apostles took up. And 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks of the preacher of the gospel, living off the gospel that he is preaching. For there is one thing that is more important than any job, that is, that the gospel be preached to all the world. For while we're living in this period of history, we have to keep working to keep the world going, to dominion over the world. We have to keep doing the jobs that are necessary but the reason why this world is here now is so that the gospel of the Lord Jesus will be preached. And so the one reason to lay off the work is to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's why the world is here. If everybody is only just keeping the world going, then there's no reason for the world to keep going. God may as well come now and stop the world because it's all finished. The reason the world goes on and on and on is to provide people the opportunity to repent. That is why God is holding back his hand of judgment to provide more nations the opportunity of repentance. That is what we are to be doing in this period of history is to go into the world to preach all the gospel. And so the one real reason to be leaving off work is to be preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I grew up in a household that was a golf-mad household and so there was over the mantelpiece a golf trophy which said, if golf interferes with your business... Give up your business. It's right, except it should have been if the gospel preaching interferes with your business, give up your business. Because gospel preaching is the important part of what you are doing. That is the eternal work you are doing every week. The job is what keeps you alive to do the gospel preaching. What is the most important thing a doctor does in a week? Teaches Sunday school to the children every Sunday morning. That's the most important thing. He may save a life here, but he will save a soul here. I'm all for him saving life, especially if it's my life, my body. I want pain-free operations under all circumstances. He's doing a wonderful looking after my carcass. But in the end, this carcass is going to cark it. That's what happens. And I want to be with the Lord Jesus Christ when it does. And so him teaching me the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is actually more important than him looking after my body, important as that may be. The job that you do is of temporal significance. The gospel you preach 
is of eternal significance. But that eternal significance transforms the temporal as well. For as the people of Africa get the gospel clear, so they create a society free from corruption. As they create a society free from corruption, so their food production goes up, so their people are able to be healthy. It's not that the eternal work has no temporal significance, it has massive temporal significance. It was because William Wilberforce was converted at university days that he worked the rest of his life to get rid of slavery across the world. Well, across the British world anyway. I mean, the eternal significance of the work has a temporal significance. It was because Mr Plimsoll was converted that he brought in the Plimsoll line and changed the shipping laws of the whole world to save sailors from being drowned because of greedy capitalists. That the eternal work has temporal significance. But what makes it important is not its temporal significance, but that it is eternal work. And when you teach three-year-olds about the Lord Jesus Christ, you are actually doing the work of eternity. The important thing you do each week is teach the three-year-olds. The necessary thing you do each week is to serve in McDonald's, which I understand is a way of getting people to eternity quicker. <laughs> Making a money so that you're able to teach your Sunday school class on Sunday morning. So let me give you some guidance about work. Which job should I go to? Why? Well, it's about priorities. Priorities in practice. That is, when you leave university, most people go and find a job. They get the best job they can. How are we going? They get the best job they can, and when they get the best job they can, they get the biggest mortgage they can to buy the nicest house they can, and when they get the big house with the big mortgage, they find the local church if they're Christians, and finding the local church, they then find out what ministry they could do in the local church. That is how the average Christian thinks about going out of university. And that's why so many, by the time they're in their 40s, are no longer ministering in a church, and by the time they're in their 50s, they're no longer in church. Because that was the paradigm by which they came out of university. Job first, house second, church third, ministry fourth. Turn it around, friends, and this is what you're supposed to do. You come out of university and say, I am going to minister amongst children. I'm going to minister amongst men. I'm going to minister amongst uh, teenagers. I'm going to look after geriatrics with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to do cross-cultural evangelism. I'm going to teach people the Bible one-to-one. I'm going I'm to go into the city and work amongst evangelizing city workers. I'm going to take a job as a teacher so that I can reach children in the schools with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am going to minister. That's my first thing. Once I've worked out my ministry, then I say, okay, which church do I go to to be able to get support to do it and to be able to support that church in the doing of it? When I've worked out the church that I can get the ministry, then I say, well, what house do I need to live in in order to be able to do that? Maybe rented, maybe bought, maybe a small house, maybe a big house, but I don't want to saddle myself with so much debt that I've got to do a job that prevents me from going to church and do my ministry. And so I'll find the house that enables me to do whatever that ministry means. Because, you see, out of, out of Fairfield, 
I don't know the statistics of the other denominations, but they are exactly the same as, as the Anglicans. I just excuse me knowing the Anglican ones. But in Fairfield, 200,000 people live around the church in Fairfield, and there are three churches in 27 suburbs around that church. Three churches, 27 suburbs. You go up the North Shore, there's 200,000 people living on the North Shore, and there's 40 Anglican churches. So you say, okay. I'm going to go into the West. I'm going to continue in the West. I'm a Westie. I live for the West. I understand the Westies. I'm going to go and minister the gospel in the Western suburbs of Sydney. So if I'm going to minister the gospel in the Western suburbs, which church is out there that needs my help? Fairfield, I can tell you that. Peter Lynn is a terrific minister. And you go to Peter Lynn and say, what ministries can I do here? And then you say, well, what kind of house can I find that will enable me to do that work? Every Christian's a missionary. Not just the ones who go overseas. Go overseas by all means. But I'm just showing you what you can do in Sydney. The ministry first, the church second, the house that I need third. Now what job do I need that will enable me to pay the rent, put food on the table, put clothes on my back that I can do this ministry in Fairfield? That's the Christian way to approach life. Because we are here for the cause of the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's what this world is all about at the moment. That's what the program is at the moment. And I am in the enormously privileged position of such wealth that I could do such a thing. Howard's better about going to college for a year or two. It will do you good, it will be benefit. Yes, he's absolutely right, but how many people from Eritrea, how many people from the Sudan, how many people from Rwanda could afford to go to college for a year or two? You and I are fabulously wealthy. We can take a year off and go to college. Oh, it's going to cost a lot of money. You've got a lot of money. And anyway, the government pays fee help. And I'll study and, 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 and. The government wants you to be in college because you make the unemployment statistics better. (laughs) They don't mind. And so we live in a country where we can do these things. To those who are given much, much will be required. We've been given much that we might take the gospel to the ends of the world. Hardly any passport in the world is as good a passport to travel on as the Australian passport. We are so insignificant, nobody hates us. (laughs) We just don't matter. We're often confused for Austrians. (laughs) It just doesn't matter. And the language that the world speaks is Mandarin. But apart from that (laughs) is the language that most of us speak. I mean, it's an extraordinary privilege that we have that we can go to the ends of the world to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why on earth are we climbing the greasy pole trying to find our significance in a career that will never give it to us so that we can live in some posh suburb up in the North Shore with, with trees around our house filling our gutters? But that's all right. We'll pay for some man to come and clean them out for us. And if he falls off and breaks his leg, that's his problem. And we will look after ourselves and our kids will be in the right kind of school, the right kind of private school. You know, the boys will be in GPS schools playing rugby and, and, and we will... E- no, I'm not an inverted snob. I come from Bellevue Hill. I went to Scots College. And I'm saying, so what? What a complete irrelevance. What a complete unimportance. Do my children have to go to private schools? No, they don't. They didn't. 
It's unimportant which school they go to. That's not the significant thing of life. The size of the house is not the significant thing of my life. The number of bedrooms I've got doesn't matter. The number of cars that my family drives, the kinds of pedigree of the dogs that we have don't matter. Nearly all the things that the Australian community works for don't matter. But the things that do matter are the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins, the salvation for eternal life. And I can do something about that next Sunday morning when I teach the five-year-olds in Sunday school. When Sunday afternoon when I take a group of teenagers and share with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I meet with some old people in the old people's homes and pray with them about their impending death. I can actually make eternally significant actions. And when there is so much ministry to do I can't keep my job then I'll even have Christian friends around who'll support me in doing it financially and when I look at the world I can see places to go where it's not just 200,000 people with three churches it's two million people with no church that I can go to and for many of you English is your second language, isn't it? And the people of your first language don't have the gospel opportunities that we have in Australia. And why do you think God has given you this gift of this other language? What you are given, you are given to use for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation of mankind. That's what you've been given. That's why you've been given it. Work, really important. Everybody should do it. So that we may live. But to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I live to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I work to live to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if I start off with a job... I'll never get to the ministry. Because within a few years, they'll say to me, oh, Philip, we need you in Melbourne. Actually, next month, we need you in London. And so I go to my pastor and I say, look, I can't keep teaching Sunday schools. I'm I'm a week in Melbourne and a month in in London. And when I get back, they're going to send me off to Washington. So I'll just keep coming to church, but I won't be able to teach Sunday school because Sunday school teachers have to be there every week and I'm too busy to be there every week. And the the pastor says to me well Philip why should you be so busy well I've got to be I mean the mortgage I've got to pay the mortgage if I don't keep this job I won't be able to afford the mortgage if I won't be able to afford the mortgage I won't be able to afford the house I mean I've just got to keep doing it and that's why you will find university graduates in their 30s and 40s dropping out of ministry and in their 40s and 50s dropping out of church and in their 50s and 60s dropping out of Christianity because they had the wrong paradigm to start with and the key paradigm part that was wrong was sex and the second part that was wrong was the job they didn't actually look for a job they looked for a career that's what they did 
Please don't. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us work to do. We thank you for the wealth of this country and the abundance of jobs that are available to us. We thank you for the privilege that we have, even in the time of the GFC, when other nations are struggling, when unemployment is rampant elsewhere, that we still have jobs available to us. We thank you for this, Father. And we thank you for the privileges you give, for the wealth and affluence that we have, that we might be able to live so comfortably. We pray, Father, that you would give to us such love of you that we will never desire money but that rather we would use the comfort that you give to us to preach the gospel to others, to use our time and our opportunities to teach your word, to preach in season and out of season, to reach out to peoples who have not yet heard, both here in this land and overseas, to find ways to enter into our society with the great message of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the forgiveness that we enjoy, the joy of knowing you as our Father, may be the forgiveness and joy that many others know. So bless us, Father, and help us. Help us to rethink our lives, to rethink our working lives, just as we rethink our marriage lives, that we might live by your mission instead of our own. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.